This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, my name is Dr. Jonathan Abel, and we are here today with Associate Professor Dr. Gates Brown. Good morning. Uh, Also with us is Dr. Bill Nance. Morning. So we're here today to talk to Dr. Brown about Eisenhower and his role in the Korean War, really bringing that conflict to a fighting, if not negotiated, end. (laughs) Um, So let's start by kind of setting the stage for the meeting of the conflict and the man. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Brown... Uh, could you briefly walk us through how the Korean War starts and what the United States is doing in Korea before Eisenhower gets to control it? Yeah. So how does it start? The, the simple answer, the North Koreans invade. But it's more interesting than that, in that the peninsula is under Japanese occupation. And the United States in the latter part of World War II is trying to figure out how do you make sure the Soviets don't take too much. You need the Soviets in the early part of the war. You need Soviet participation in the Pacific. By 45, though, that's not clear, especially once you've got a successful atomic bomb. And so at the very end of the war, there's a lot of discussion about how can you end this war before the Soviets are definitely able to get any occupation rights in Japan. You don't want that. You've already seen what's what's happened in Eastern Europe. So there are some parts that you just can't get to quickly enough. Korea is one of those. And so how do you figure out what the Soviets can get and what you're willing to to give them, in a sense? Colonel Dean Rusk, a guy who will come back in the 1960s, is part of this discussion, and they're looking at a map of the peninsula, and they draw a line across 38th parallel. Why the 38th? It seemed to be kind of in the middle. And importantly, the United States could conceivably get troops to occupy the southern part of that area before the Soviets. The other side, well, why don't we just occupy the whole peninsula? One, we've got a couple of wartime agreements with the Soviets that they do have occupation rights, so they do have some say in the Pacific theater. The other side, Stalin understands that the clock is running out. He's pushed his forces forward in Manchuria, and he's going to try to get down to the northern part of Korea. And so we can't stop them completely. And so that's why the 38th is that, that area where we think we can get there to occupy enough, but we can't beat the Soviets to the northern part of Korea. Once you've got that separation, it's supposed to be for a limited amount of time because you want to get Korea independent. You want Korea to be ruled by Koreans. Makes sense. However, that's not necessarily the Soviet occupation policy. But the United States is going to go through all kinds of contortions about what do you keep there. So we've got an occupation force there till 1949-1950. And when we pull it back, we pull it back a little bit ironically because we're trying to make the Pacific forces in the United States make sense operationally. There's a realization that occupation has really eroded the military capacity. So how do you make these forces better able to fight. Well, you get them in more concentrated areas, which is going to be Japan, allow them to train, get them refitted, which means you got to pull them out from the periphery. As we're pulling forces out, the Soviets 
ostensibly are pulling forces out, but really what they've done is given the North Koreans a lot more effective weapons, and they've given them some effective training, and they've got Soviet advisors there. We don't give the South Koreans as much because what we don't want to do is incentivize the re-regime to go north. The Soviets don't have a similar restraining effect on the North Koreans. So I don't know if that's helpful. No, that's, that's excellent. So that sets us up for the conflict. Uh, as you said, we're, we're pretty sure the North Koreans are the ones who started it. <laughs> right. That's it's, a, it's still a little bit of a question. We're pretty yeah. sure. Uh, so the, the United States gets involved in Korea. Why? We understand the whole communism yeah. thing, but why specifically Korea? That, all right. Before Korea, there's a whole debate about what is the right way to approach foreign policy. And Nitsa and Kennan, Paul Nitsa, George Kennan, are two of the guys inside this thing called the policy planning group inside of policy planning staff, inside the State Department. And one of the things that's interesting, in the 1950s, the State Department's really leading the charge in creating U.S. strategy in a way that now we see the Defense Department doing that. That's not the case. Policy planning group's doing this. So in 1950, the Truman administration is looking at a couple of key things. One, thermonuclear weapons are going to happen because it's possible. We know the Soviets are going to do it. The Truman administration is going to investigate that. And now the question is, how do you change your strategy? You had an atomic monopoly until 49. Then the Soviets get their bomb, but it's still a fission bomb. 1950, the United States underwrites the research for thermonuclear. You understand the Soviets are going to do it. Thermonuclear is an incredible expansion of destruction. What does that mean for U.S. policy? The other side of it is it's clear that the Soviets aren't aren't allowing autonomy in Eastern Europe. And by 1950, the communists are in charge of China. So Truman asked the National Security Council, which then gets devolved down to the State Department, to come up with a better understanding of what U.S. policy should be. Kennan is one that advocates for containment, and he does that in the late 1940s with the sources of Soviet conduct. But his idea of containment is focused on important areas. So North America is obviously important, it's where the United States is, Britain, Central Europe, Soviet Union, Japan. The United States has lost the Soviet Union with good reason, it's the Soviets. We can keep a hold on North America. Central Europe, that's what NATO's supposed to do, but NATO's not militarized yet, but that's a good way to keep at least economic ties. And then Japan. Japan can be a bulwark for not just power projection, but also economic access, and ensure the Soviets don't, communism doesn't take over all of Asia. Paul Nitsa, on the other hand, who is the one that really creates this foundational document, and is NSC 68, which is his recommendation to Truman. He's more of not a rollback guy. You're not going to take back Eastern Europe, but you're going to have a perimeter defense. So instead of focusing on strong points, you're going to try to forward project and keep the Soviets contained more militarily. Where Kennan's focused on economic aspects of power, diplomatic aspects of power, Nitsa argues it can't just be those things. It has to be military. When we talked about military, it can't just be atomic in nature. It also has to be conventional because Nitsa's looking at the correlation of power 
and he sees that the Soviets haven't demobilized their military. The Soviets seem to be okay with large conventional forces, and they're adding to that atomic forces, where the United States has degraded its conventional forces while trying to focus on more of an atomic monopoly. Then that goes away, so more of an atomic-focused defense. And Nitz's recommendation is we need both, and they need to be forward deployed because we need to make sure that we can deter conflict with the Soviet Union. It's incredibly expensive. They put it on the shelf. It comes about in March, April 1950, before the invasion. Once the invasion starts, it's a catalyst for a couple of things. One, it makes it clear that an atomic-focused deterrent is not going to deter all conflict. It also calls into question the United States' ability to protect its security partners. The United States, as an occupying power in South Korea, was there to help make sure that they had good governance, but also to create some sense of a military. That military was for internal power projection, but also defense, not operationally offensive. But the United States underwrote the security of South Korea, the Republic of Korea. Once we leave, we still have that as a tacit agreement. It's not to the level of an ally, but it's still clear the United States is the security guarantor of the Republic of Korea. So. If the North Koreans are able to come over, run the table quickly, and the United States just kind of shrugs and says, we tried, but we couldn't do it. It's not about what happens in Korea. The question is, what happens in NATO? Because NATO is a new organization, and it's really not militarized to the state that it will be. But you're trying to figure out what you do. And so there, there's an idea you're going to send about four divisions over, and that's going to be the beginning of this kernel of military power for NATO is the European countries are able to get their security forces online. But if the United States is not able to protect South Korea, then what about West Germany? What about Italy? What about those countries that are on the front lines of this division between the socialist world and the democratic world? And that's why the United States, that's why the Truman administration makes the decision you can't let this stand. It's not about specifically what's happening in Korea. It's about the message it sends to security partners and allies in Europe. Yeah, and what you're saying I think is very important. And it sounds like you're suggesting the idea that a lot of people have is that the Cold War was kind of a switch that was flipped mm -hmm. in 45 or 47 or whatever. It sounds like you're characterizing it more as a transition yeah. from U.S. Soviets as allies to... Cold War, Iron Curtain. Yeah. When it, it, there's, there's an awful lot of evolution. And some of that evolution happens in World War II. And one of the things that's interesting is these agreements. So you've got Yalta, you've got Potsdam, where it's a solidification of this division in Europe. Yalta, you understand the Red Army is going to occupy what the Red Army has. The British, the French, and the U.S. will occupy what they have. And that's where you kind of decide, well, Elbe's probably about as far east as you're going to get the Allies, the British, the French, the U.S. to go. And that means the Soviets are going to get the rest of it, which includes massive parts of Germany and Berlin. And in Potsdam, you solidify those things, but you also try to, to push the Soviets to adhere to the Yalta agreements, which had this idea of self-determination, that countries like Poland should be able to elect governments that they want. However, at Potsdam, the British say, well, we've got a Polish government in, in exile in London. They should be part of this. And Stalin says, or not. 
What are you going to do? And, and that's where this power differential starts, starts to be clear. Because if you're going to forcibly, if you're going to change it, it's going to require another conflict. And nobody has the appetite for that. And so you say, okay, well, we, we kind of lost that one. But then in the early Cold War period, in the 1940s, you've got the Berlin blockade. You've got a coup that you forcibly put down in Czechoslovakia. And it's really incredible that this evolution that you talk about, Stalin is a wartime partner, and it's not that you ignore the problems in Stalin's Soviet Union, but they just aren't as urgent. Once you need him to kind of pull back and be copacetic with a new international environment based on national autonomy, turns out Soviet security interests are going to carry the day, and the United States just doesn't have the appetite to continue the conflict. And so, yeah, it's, it's not a switch. It's something that becomes more and more solidified, but it's also papered, not paper, but, but layered onto that are the problems in the United States with communism and the second Red Scare, and that just makes this seem more urgent and also more far-reaching. So let's, uh, so we're talking about this era where we're kind of transitioning into the Cold War rather than flipping into it. Yeah. And you talked a lot about the State Department, but let's talk about kind of the, the military figures, kind of focusing on kind of the big names, Eisenhower. Marshall, of course, becomes part of the administration shortly after mm -hmm. the war, uh, but MacArthur. And maybe let's focus on Eisenhower because he's, of course, your, okay. your focus of research. But what are these big, tremendous names from the Second World War who are still in uniform? Yeah. What role are they playing in this transitionary period? So Eisenhower, after the war, is going to be the chief of staff of the Army, which in some ways is the pinnacle of a career and in other ways a thankless task because Eisenhower is going to be charged with cutting to the bone the military that, that he helped build for World War II. He's also trying to balance what type of force do you need in this post-war world. And it's clear that it's not going to be a large ground contingent. And so that's one of the things that he's trying to do until he leaves service 48, 49, then he's going to be president of Columbia University. And it seems a, a little bit of an odd choice for him, just given his military experience. But he takes that position because what he wants to do is try to inculcate in American youth this idea that the world is much bigger than just the United States. And the world needs a presence that understands the importance of democracy, understands the importance of American values, and he hopes, as president of Columbia, he can start that conversation. And so he's got a lot of different opportunities, but the reason he takes Columbia, the presidency of Columbia University, is he thinks that's going to allow him to continue to talk about the importance of the United States being an international player. You talk about Marshall. Marshall He's going to wear a couple of different hats out of uniform, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense. He's going to go to China and try to, to do whatever's possible in China. And one of the things that's interesting, Marshall, I think, gets a lot of thankless tasks because Marshall is George Marshall. He will do the best, even in a situation that's impossible. So you send him to China to try to, Lord knows what, right? I mean, <laughs> the idea that you can drastically change whatever, anyway. He does the best that he can do with a situation that's probably foreordained to end in failure. Secretary of State, how do you understand what the U.S. role should be? And one of the things I think is fascinating with Marshall is the man who spends his entire career as a military leader 
but yet one of the things he's responsible for is this economic recovery program that does two things. It rebuilds the European economy, but it also helps to rebuild the American economy by giving it access to foreign markets and is a shot across the bow to the Soviet economic system that can't compete. And Marshall, it's a Marshall program, depending on who you read, folks have Paul Nitza says, no, I'm the one that came up with it. I don't necessarily think that's that's completely true. Paul Nitza has reasons to argue that. But I think George Marshall, even if that were true, the idea that he saw the, the possibility and the importance of that shows that he had a greater understanding of national security than just what we would think decades in military service would give you an idea for. So what you're kind of highlighting is these two individuals in particular, Eisenhower and Marshall. Yeah. Although they were at the top of their military careers, they seem to concede the larger decision-making authority and powers to the civilian levels of government. Yeah. Uh, and now Marshall, of course, went into a right. decision-making He becomes authority, one of those policymakers, right. But he waited until he took the uniform off. Mm -hmm. Can you contrast that with the other big name that we talked about, uh, good, old, good old Douglas MacArthur. MacArthur. Right, so MacArthur, and, and that'll be... Much more problematic in the Korean War, right? So in the in the immediate post-war period, though, MacArthur is a policymaker, not a U.S. policymaker necessarily, but definitely a Japanese policymaker. And again, it's interesting, given the contrast that we'll see, the tension between Truman and, and MacArthur, but he creates a con not creates, he helps to instill a constitution in Japan that is generally well accepted. He understands that you have to not make nice, but you have to work with the emperor, even though the emperor is going to be one who's removed from a lot of political power, but still in order to make sure that this occupation goes as well as you can hope, that you have to work with him. And so MacArthur, I think, he becomes everything he wanted to be, right? When you look at him as a marshal in the Philippines, he doesn't have the political power, but he is a, he's a marshal of the Philippines. He can never be a marshal in the United States for obvious reasons. But he doesn't have the political power now in Japan. He seems to have both, right? He is the supreme commander of U.S. forces in Far East Asia, but he's also this political leader because the Japanese, they're going to have some semblance of government, but until the, there's actual peace treaty, it is the United States occupying forces that are creating policy and really running the governance structure in Japan. And so I think MacArthur gets the best of both worlds. He's essentially sense. the shogun, right? Yeah. He is, which again, like that's, I hate to project too much on MacArthur, but it seems to be the culmination of all that he thought he was capable of. Right. Yeah. And so we're headed for kind of the collision of all of these different figures in Korea. So at the risk of kind of belaboring the facts, basically we have the, the war goes poorly for the South Koreans, the United States first. They almost lose. They manage to rally. They push the North Koreans back to where they almost win. Mm -hmm. China becomes involved. And basically, we end up with a stalemate where we're fighting back and forth, essentially between Seoul and Pyongyang for a while, with lots of people dying for no real kind of effect. So what is Eisenhower doing during this period, the early Korean War? Oh, yeah. So he, when the war starts, he's president of Columbia University. And he, to, to say he retires really misses the point that as a five-star general, you cannot retire. So he's maintained on the active list. He has some semblance, not a staff, but he has an NCO aide. He is able to get a driver for official purposes. He's always on retainer for security advising. And so 
the first thing that he does, he goes down to the Pentagon. And he knows people there because he has spent decades watching these people grow. And he's surprised by the lack of urgency. Because when the war starts, Eisenhower sees this as not on the scale of World War II, but something that is urgent and that should require a lot of urgency and action and large-scale response. And what he sees in the Pentagon is not that level of urgency and not that level of realization that this is a fundamental problem. It's going to require some level of societal mobilization. It's going to require some level of economic mobilization. He sees kind of a lackadaisical approach. And that's one of the interesting things for a, for a man whose presidency is going to be defined by trying to avoid limited war and not going, not leaning too far into conventional conflicts. It seems like he wants to go and you know knock people around and say, you got to start fighting. You really got to get into this. But what he's going to do is something that is going to be, I don't know about more important, but just as important. And that is, we talked about the beginning of NATO. It doesn't have a real good military command structure. Truman is going to appoint Eisenhower as the first NATO commander, so Supreme Allied Commander of Europe. And what he's going to be responsible for is building this military power. As the United States starts to mobilize, we're going to send an awful lot of men to Europe to help be the front line and have power projection capacity in Europe. What he's not going to do is be fundamental in what's going on in Korea. He's not as concerned. That's not true. It's not that he's not concerned. It's that he's once he is Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, he doesn't have the time or the bandwidth to focus on what's going on in Korea. So is that? No, that's answer? that's perfect. Okay. And I, I, before we go any further talking about the details of this, could you tell us a little bit about Eisenhower's personality and what how he kind of approached his command positions and his roles in in these various organizations? Oh man, yeah. I did, without I, I'm not going to psychoanalyze anybody. So. Eisenhower was good with delegation. And that's one of the things that's interesting. He, his career is not one that lends itself to like a Patton where he's a maneuver commander, he's a great tactical thinker, he understands how to, to be in the front lines. When Eisenhower is picked to be the commander of forces of World War II, the British kind of pull back and they say, well, what has he ever done, right? He's been a chief of staff of, of an army. Okay, great, but why him? And it's because he understands how to work across not just inter-organization, but also international. He understands how to balance competing e egos, and he understands how to get the most out of subordinates. It's not that he is a brilliant tactical thinker, and not, not to to denigrate his tactical capacity, but there are better tactical thinkers. What Eisenhower does incredibly well is understand how to work within an alliance and give his subordinates as much leeway as is effective without so much that they start to, to be too much in competition. And I think that that's where he is really effective. So kind of building on that, uh, and I've done a lot of work with World War II, and I wholeheartedly agree with your assessment there. Can you tell, uh, talk about how he used that personality? Because we, uh, we've seen it in World War II where he has to balance, of course, Bradley and Montgomery and Patton. Yeah. Just these huge personalities. Same but we don't talk all. about probably arguably the harder task, which is in World War II, everyone's got a, 
a threat right in front of them that yeah. is actively shooting at them. Now you've got the war, yeah, you have the Soviets, and then what will become the Warsaw Pact later that is still a threat. But how does he then get all these different countries and all these different cats all kind of going in the same direction? The catalyst of the Korean War helps out quite a bit, right? And so that's one of the things that we look at the buildup of NATO and the Korean War. They take place on opposite sides of the globe, and sometimes we can disarticulate them. But it's clear that this communist power is militarily capable when you see what the North Koreans are able to do and then when you see what the Chinese are able to do. The worry is, well, so the Chinese, they do this with human wave attacks. What about, you talk about the Warsaw Pact, when it becomes a threat, but what about the Red Army that's not going to fight in human wave attacks? They're going to fight with tanks. They're going to fight with artillery. And when you're in the 1950s, now they've got atomic weapons. Don't know how many, don't know how effective, and we also don't know power projecting capability, but they have them. And so that catalyst does provide a lot of motivation. What Eisenhower is able to do well is help make the rearmament of West Germany palatable for the French. And so that's one of the real big sticking points with NATO. There's not a way to secure Europe without getting West Germany involved. But if you're France, you have a very understandable aversion to arming Germany. They, ha they have somewhat of a history. Hey, right, yeah. yeah they somewhat of, so Eisenhower is able to come in and make this palatable by saying, well, what we don't want is necessarily national armies, but we also don't want just a pan-European army, so how do we kind of split the difference? And you allow the Germans to do some things, but not other things. It's clear that the Germans aren't going to be in high echelon command in NATO, whatever that NATO force is going to look like. It's clear that France is going to be able to have a, a larger force relative to Germans, but the Germans are going to have enough say that gives them the incentive to be a part of this new security alliance. The other incentive for the Germans is they've got East Germany, which is not, hasn't demobilized and is still a threat. And so I think that's one of the things that Eisenhower is able to do is make this make this possible, but there's also this driving force of the militarized part of the Cold War. Prior to the Cold War, you had some diplomatic standoffs and you had some internal power projection of the Soviet Union, but Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. But the Korean War makes it clear that maybe the communist powers are a little bit more expansive. So just, I kind of had this thought as you were talking, and this almost shows that Truman is really capable of using his subordinates to best effect. He's got, uh, he needs to put, uh, he needs to put NATO together. So he sends Eisenhower over there. He needs a big figurehead to kind of make Japan and the East work. And that's MacArthur. But he's also then able to put MacArthur in his place when he needs to. And it seems like uh, they're, like Truman's actually doing a little bit of uh, talent management, doing, picking well, the right man for the right job. So I, not, not taking anything away from Truman. Truman doesn't have a choice from MacArthur, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there's that. So the question of MacArthur, you know, a, a man who's been the chief staff of the Army, probably that's the time to, to usher him into another phase of life, but that doesn't happen. And so what do you do with a man who was a chief of staff of the Army when the rest of these folks were field grade officers? I don't know. Is far and away the senior most officer, right? Right. You, you have to do something. You right. can't just fire the guy until you have good cause. And so Truman falls into MacArthur. There's not... There's not a lot of appreciation for, for MacArthur's self-esteem or MacArthur's estimation of his own capabilities. It's more that he's off doing his own thing, seems to be okay, not causing trouble, that'll be all right. 
But I think where Truman is effective, he does get some folks around him that work out well. Uh, Dean Ashton, even though he's going to be divisive in Congress, is pretty good Secretary of State as far as understanding what the overall strategy of the United States should be. He is able to work well with, like you said, putting Eisenhower. The question is, well, who else would you put in charge of a European alliance? There aren't a whole lot of other names that would lend themselves to that because Eisenhower did that as Supreme Allied Commander in World War II. It's not just that he was working with subordinates like you talked about. He's also working with de Gaulle. De Gaulle is now going to be much more prominent as you start to get in the 1950s, but Eisenhower has experience in Europe. He's also acceptable in European governments because of his success in World War II and because of his command style in World War II. But Eisenhower doesn't set himself up as the shogun of Western Europe. <laughs> no, no, because Eisenhower doesn't. So remember, Japan's government cannot continue to rule right at the end of World War II. You, and in a sense, the countries of Eastern Europe, their governments cannot continue to rule as they were constituted before. But what do you do with the part of Germany that's going to be in NATO and then with with France, with Italy, what do you do with those other countries, with the low countries, what do you do with those countries that have their own governments and have a vested interest in security but don't have the resources or maybe individually don't have the resources? Well, you need to pull them together, but how do you pull them together in a way that doesn't doesn't upset the balance of power in Europe? You bring the United States in, which can kind of help even out some of these, the, these wrinkles. If you just had a, a French-led alliance, the Germans may not like that, right? It also may not be real popular for the Netherlands, for Belgium. So when you have the United States come in, not to say that it's altruistic, but it's also clear the United States is outside of these continental problems. So Eisenhower is in Europe. He's standing up the militarized NATO, right? Uh, this is also the time of the McCarthy hearings, the Second Red Scare. There's a lot going on in America. So what's Eisenhower's attitude towards communism in general mm. and kind of the direction he thinks American politics should go? Yeah. He's against it right now. <laughs> One of the problems that Eisenhower sees with the national security requirements of the Cold War is if you have to maintain the United States on a wartime footing as you've got in the Korean War, You'll have to, he talks about this this regimentation of U.S. society. You'll have to create a garrison state. And that garrison state will be such an intrusion on people's individual liberty because they'll have to be conscripted in, in large numbers. Or if you're not conscripted, you'll have to be directed to some economic job, some job to feed the war effort. Or you'll be under price controls to make this thing economically viable. That the system the United States would have to create to fight a war of this scale for a long period of time would eventually mirror the Soviet Union, even though you wouldn't have the ideology. And we'll talk about the ideology in a minute. But it, it wouldn't have the ideological foundation. But for all intents and purposes, it would be just as regimented, just as oppressive. And that's why you have to find some other way. So he doesn't like, one, the lack of personal autonomy, the lack of the ability of somebody to chart their own path, not just in terms of your job, that's a little bit too materialistic, but it is in terms of what is the right approach to life for me. Communism doesn't provide that. The other side is the ideology. And it's not to say that Eisenhower, he's not an overtly religious person, but he is religious. And I think in a way that in the middle of the 20th century, most folks 
were religious to, to some degree or not. He's not a person that is going to, when he becomes a presidential candidate, he actually officially joins a church, right? So it's not to say that's a cynical move, but it is to say that religion is not something that's at the forefront of his life. But in the Cold War, that's when we're going to add under God and the Pledge of Allegiance to make it clear that the United States is at least cognizant that there is a, a higher power. And people should be free to worship that higher power however they want to. Whereas in the Soviet Union, you can't make even that basic decision for how you should order your life. And so that's one of the big differences that he sees between his approach for U.S. domestic life and the Soviet Union. When it comes to international relations, the Soviet Union, we talked about Stalin forcing governments on the occupied countries of Eastern Europe. But from the United States perspective, the Soviet Union also, in a sense, imposes communism on China. That is a, a, a tortured interpretation for a whole lot of reasons we don't have time to go into, but suffice it to say that that's, that is the assumption in the 1950s, that the United States loses China, the Soviets gain it and impose communism on China. Yeah, and the saying is, we've lost China, right? Right, right, as if we had it. Right. So, I mean, right. But anyway, but that shows that communism for Eisenhower is something that expands and imposes on people, whereas from his understanding, the United States offers voluntary association and national autonomy. We won't talk about the non-aligned movement, and if you choose to be you know, not a part of either camp, that's a whole other thing, but that is the bumper sticker. Well, we'll go there. That, that's right. the bumper sticker, that nations can freely associate with the United States, but they cannot freely associate or disassociate from communist powers. And so that's where he sees the United States charting a different path internationally. One that's going to be just as militarized, but militarized based on freely associated states, whereas the Warsaw Pact is going to be associated on states that are compelled to, to associate. So we've got this this man who is a man of service, um, and he has his personal beliefs and convictions, but he, he very much is a man who goes where he's told and does what he's told, unlike a MacArthur, for example. Mm -hmm. How then do we go from the Eisenhower who is dutifully setting up NATO to the Eisenhower who runs for president in 1952? <laughs> so there, there's, oh, okay. All right, so dutifully. I think he does answer the president's request to come back in uniform. When he's in NATO, when he's in Paris, NATO headquarters, he has a lot of folks coming to him saying, well, you've got to run for president. And that's not the first time. This is the, the 1952 presidential election. That's not the first time. 1948, Truman had said, I'll even be your running mate if you'll just, if you'll run. And it's because, one, Eisenhower, people know him. Name recognition is always good in politics. But it's not just the fact that people would know him. It's that he has a good character. People seem to think that he'd make good decisions. When given an incredible amount of power, it doesn't seem to corrupt him in the way that it can go to other people's heads. MacArthur. <laughs> yeah, your word's not mine, but yeah, yeah, MacArthur. <laughs> right. So it seems like Eisenhower is a person that you can trust. But Eisenhower doesn't want that. And even in World War II, there are folks making the rounds, you know, he'd be really good. But he doesn't think that it's necessarily healthy to have general officers as presidents. It's not that it hasn't happened, it's just that you shouldn't make it a habit. And he also doesn't want it. He wants to, to retire. Okay. That, that is the, the ostensible, that's what he talked about in his memoirs, I just want to be done with this whole thing. Then the question is, in 1952, why do these folks that are coming in, not secretly, 
but also not publicly. People like Henry Cabot Lodge are going to be talking to Eisenhower and saying, well, you really have to run. And then there's going to be a movement for Eisenhower that, again, ostensibly, he has no connection with, even though he does have these back-channel connections. It's a division in the Republican Party. We go back to why he went to Columbia University. He understood that the United States needed to be prominent in the international environment, that it did need to be a force for good. But there are folks in the Republican Party who thought the United States really should pull back. Maybe you have economic access, maybe the United States can be important as, as an economic power, but militarily, we shouldn't be all far flung. That the United States shouldn't go about looking for monsters to slay, right? John Adams. But for Eisenhower, if you're not forward deployed, you've created a vacuum. And the countries in Europe don't have the capacity to stop. The countries in Asia have already shown the trouble that they have in terms of stopping unassisted this communist expansion. So you've got to get out there. Why not be a Democrat then? Because Democrats seem to be the party that's all about militarizing NATO, putting forces forward deployed. One, Eisenhower, from a young age, identified with the Republican Party. He thought that its approach to economics, its approach to the size of government was something that he supported. And it's not to say that he's a, a doctrinaire, we're going to roll back the New Deal, we're going to cut the government in half, but he's uneasy with the Democrats as far as a political party. He also didn't think it was healthy for the nation to have yet another Democratic administration. Roosevelt comes to office in 33, and then we've got Truman, who is until 52, 53 when he actually leaves. So you've got two decades of Democratic rule. The Republicans are out of Congress for a lot of that. In the latter part of the 1940s, you finally have, finally, you have a Republican Congress. And so Eisenhower says he believes that it's kind of corrosive for one party to have that much control for that long a time. And that's another reason why he wants to go to the Republican side. But in order to make that happen, you got to beat Senator Taft. Senator Taft is the isolationist senator. He's also Mr. Republican. And that's one of the reasons why he gets involved in the 1952 presidential campaign, is Taft would have the nomination if it weren't for Eisenhower. And if Taft gets the nomination, there's good reason to think one of two things will happen. Taft probably is not going to win, because again, he's Mr. Republican. and now we, we look at our politics and we say, well, yeah, there's always going to be kind of 40% Republican, 40% Democratic, and then there's going to be this 20% that are kind of fighting in the middle. The Democratic Party is pretty popular in places now that doesn't make sense, right? So you've got the South that is the hardcore Democrat, and you've got a large participation in, in union labor. And so the Democrats have kind of a baked-in advantage. And if you run somebody like Taft, who is going to run on a business-friendly platform, who's going to run on an isolationist He's platform. He's a plutocrat, right? Yeah, that's a... <laughs> yes, yeah, he, he is, in that those folks have good economic understanding, so definitely they should have an, an outside say in policies. But that's not attractive to your average everyday voter, right? right They're going to the, the say... the New Deal voter. Ex yeah, because Taft would be a president who wants to roll back the New Deal, and people would say, well, no, I, I kind of like the New Deal. It I seems like, to have I like okay. my lights on. That's right, exactly. So Taft wouldn't win. Right. And even if he did win. And it's not the domestic problems that Eisenhower looks to, it's the international problems. That if Taft does, by some chance, get into office, Taft would maybe not necessarily pull out of NATO, but he would try to demilitarize, or at least get U.S. troops out of it. 
he would try to move troops from the Pacific at a time when this Cold War seems to be even more aggressive. So that doesn't make sense. And that's why he decides he has to get it, not because he has a, a burning desire necessarily. Although, so some of the interpretations are that this responsibility is foisted upon Eisenhower. And I think there is something to be said that he doesn't necessarily, he doesn't covet the presidency. But he also doesn't forcefully push it away, right? When people come knocking on his door and say, I'd like to talk to you about the campaign. I'd like to talk to you about this effort we're going to run that's going to get you on the ballot in these states for primaries. He doesn't say, I will never be a candidate. Which William Sherman famously did. Yeah, right, right. So you've got folks that have that idea. Well, if nominated, I will not run. If elected, I will not serve. That's not Eisenhower. And some of that is this idea that you talked about, the sense of duty. He does see the presidency as a higher calling, and that's one of the things that he will talk about when people press him on it, is if there is a higher calling, then I would respect that higher calling, and I would serve the nation in that way. There, the, there's nothing wrong with with liking being in charge. No, there's nothing wrong with and I think we're, we're and this is something I'm still trying to, yeah. still, still wrestling with. So the, the policies in place at the time, uniformed officers, cannot campaign for office. And the question is, does knowledge of campaigning on your behalf constitute campaigning, right? It's one thing to say, I had no idea there was going to be a rally in Madison Square Garden. Oh, who who put my name on the primary ballot in New Hampshire? This is craziness. That's not what happens, right? He knows that some of these things are happening. He knows there is an Americans for Eisenhower movement and he doesn't stop it and so the, the, it's more of a proprietary you know, it's, it's more of a, a pragmatic or not to say a professional question it's not that he is disobeying regulations it's more you're you're asking that not campaigning to do a lot of work and i'm that's where i'm trying to muscle through or, or muddle through things right now in terms of my research trying to figure out like what, what is the the best understanding of that because I, I know if you have if you have knowledge of something and something's being done on your behalf, you are at least giving not even tacit approval to it, active approval to well, it. Well, I think it's also important for listeners to understand this is not the modern American political system. This is not a system where primaries decide the candidate. That's this is true. a lot of backroom dealing. It's yeah. a lot of string polling from people who went to Columbia. Yep. Yeah, and so that, that's a really good point that we talk about primaries. And primaries are something that are starting, but not all states will hold a primary in 1952. Only a few states will. And the primaries are more bellwethers to see who's got some early name recognition, who seems to be getting traction, but it's actually the state delegates that are going to decide this. And so there's a whole, and there's a, I've yet to get to that part of the 1952 election as far as like in-depth research, but the whole thing of Texas, right? The Texas delegates are going to be incredibly problematic in that Taft is going to have his set, and then Eisenhower is going to have his set, and they, who do you seat at the convention? And it really comes down to these internecine definitions about, well, this is the right set of delegates because they were actually in caucus at this time in these places, and that's why Taft can't be, or Taft says, oh, no, the Eisenhower delegates aren't right. So there's a whole lot of backroom deals, and it's really fascinating in that we look at presidential campaigns today, and before the convention, we know who's going to be the nominee, and that is not the case in 1952. Mm -hmm. By the time you get to the convention, Eisenhower has, he's not going to win on the first ballot, but Nobody's going to win in the first ballot. Right. The question is, can you get enough folks to give their second ballot to you? So you've got folks like Earl Warren, 
who's not going to win the nomination. He's kind of the dark horse candidate. But his delegates say, well, yes, we will, after the first ballot, because we have to vote for the home, the home state guy, then we'll go over to Eisenhower's camp. And then Eisenhower does get his Texas delegate set. And so it's not the first ballot. It's going to be subsequent ballots. He finally gets the nomination. So it's a much different presidential nominating process than we're familiar with. And it's one that we talk about backroom deals, and that's not it's not great as far as transparent democracy. But it's also, I don't know if necessarily the, the current one is markedly better. It's just whose interests are served and how do you balance those things out. But it is interesting that Eisenhower has to have a very quick education on all these things that he thought, well, I'm just going to, his ideal is more in MacArthur's, MacArthur has designs that he will be nominated in the 1952 convention and then he will just walk through and by acclamation right and that's not going to happen for MacArthur even though he's a keynote speaker in the convention Eisenhower in the early stages of people sounding him out hopes to have that that we'll get to the nomination and people will acclaim Eisenhower and then he'll stand forth and then he won't even have to campaign right he, people will know him they'll respect him they will want him as president, and he won't be sullied by all these dirty political things, which, in, in fact, he is uncomfortable. However, people disabuse him of that notion. They say, actually, you're going to have to campaign. You're probably going to have to campaign earlier than you thought. You're going to have to campaign in the primaries. And so he, he leaves NATO earlier than he thought he would. So you're actually highlighting a very nuanced character. This isn't like some Boy Scout, you know, some pure Boy Scout that oh. you know, doesn't want to do things. But it's actually a more interesting character, right? Because... He's a person who has strong uh, ideals and strong and strong beliefs, but yet you're also highlighting that he can make the system work. Oh yeah, uh, like he he can get into the backroom deals and do the political actions. Which kind of uh, do you think this kind of holds over from his time in, when he's uh, in the, uh, the Allied Expeditionary Force, <laughs> and he's got to make the <laughs> Brits and the Americans and the French all kind of work together? Truman, when Truman is contemplating this transition yeah. to the Eisenhower presidency. He says, oh, man, you know, Ike is going to hate this because he's used to being a general. And generals, they say, you do this, and it's yes, sir, and it happens. And he says, you know, that's not going to happen as a politician. But to your point, Eisenhower had been in situations where, okay, I, I am the senior U.S. officer. Great. But you're not a marshal. Hmm. That's awkward. And it's, it's worth pointing out that in European systems, a marshal yeah. is equivalent to a seven or eight star general. Thank you. Yes. And so that's one of the reasons why we get the five star generals, because our guys are always out class when they go into a room and they're surrounded by marshals and they go, so you're just a general, right? And they go, well, hold on. Like, I am the highest general, but you're just a general. So why don't you let, why don't you let the marshals talk? And that is something that works maybe in the early part of the war when the British are making a lot of the contributions. It's something that's a little bit harder to do in the latter part of the war when the United States is making a lot of the contributions. But your point's well taken that Eisenhower has to work in these environments where a hierarchy is not always clearly defined. Yes, even though he's a supreme allied commander, he's working with other nations' senior military officers. And it's just... It's not done just tell them, well, shut up and color in the lines because I'm your boss. Maybe that'll work once, but that's not a good working relationship. And so I do think that he's able to leverage some of that experience. Politics is different, though, and this is one of the things that I think frustrates him. In World War II, it's clear you really have to make this work because the cost of failure is so high. Politics, though, can really be petty. 
right? So we're going to sully ourselves. We're going to make these moral compromises. Why? So we can have a little bit of a change to the tax code or so that I can get an office in D.C. and really not make that much of a difference? Now, it's a little different for being a president. But at the end of the day, he, he looks at politics in a little bit of a lesser light just because people seem to be willing to make these compromises for situations that aren't as urgent or as existential as World War II. And there's a great irony here that, that Eisenhower kind of holds himself apart from the mud of politics and that he runs the first modern campaign with the I Like Ike slogan, with the commercials. <laughs> so the question is like, how much is how much is he doing that? And then how much is that kind of foisted on him? But you're right that he's got an incredible marketing approach. I Like Ike, he's got a theme song. Adelaide Stevenson also has a theme song. It's not quite as catchy. Adelaide Stevenson's maybe not as much of a sympathetic character. But he does run a campaign that's focused on Korea to a degree, but not as for we think about Korea being it's a wartime election, but Korea's not really the, the forefront. What he spends a lot of his TV spots doing is talking about inflation, talking about the fact that people, he has kind of man on the street, they're, they're not man on the street, that they're actors, but they, they seem to be man on the street things, and they will have these folks ask a question and then Eisenhower is filmed giving his response. And they're they're brilliant. What's fascinating is though he he hates it because it's not he what he thought is, well I'll go in, I've got a script. And the script is one that he has influence on. It's not just he's he's not just saying words that are written for him. But I'll say it and then we'll be done. He doesn't realize television doesn't work that way. That even if you read it perfectly the first time well, your pace might have been a little off, or, you know, your face didn't quite have the look that we wanted, so we're going to do it a second time. We probably should do it five or six times. That way, when we're editing, we've got options. And he hates it because, oh, I, I want to be doing other things than, than this, right? But he he addresses these things that are, you know, the trope of kitchen table issues. Why can't my dollar go as far as it used to? Why are there these issues and corruption in government? What are you going to do about them? And so he really runs much more on inflation and on corruption than he does on Korea. But it is very much a, a television campaign, and in as much as you can have a television campaign when television's not as ubiquitous. But man, he spends an awful lot of time doing that. And he still does whistle-stop stuff, which is kind of an interesting tension that you've got these, these whistle-stop campaign events, and we look at that and go, well, that's kind of cheesy. But then he also has this very modern approach with television ads, radio ads. It, it's great. So you're highlighting that maybe it wasn't just all Eisenhower. He had assembled a very good team that, oh, could, yeah. that could serve him well. Well, okay. And yes. That, I don't want to say, not to say that Eisenhower is a plutocrat, but to kind of go back to your, your idea. of sorry. <laughs> Eisenhower is... It's not that Eisenhower goes out and, and recruits all these folks. It's that the Republican establishment, as, as it was, realizes that if it can get a candidate like Eisenhower, they have a much better chance of winning the election in 1952. If they get a Republican president, hopefully the Republican president will have coattails enough to bring in a Republican Congress, then you can actually get some policies that, in, in their view, would be more business-friendly. And that's one of the criticisms that Eisenhower comes under is this, you know, million-dollar cabinet. He has friends that are phenomenally wealthy. Uh, he is going to be a member at Augusta National Golf Club, not because his golf game is great. He's an avid golfer, 
but it's because he knows folks who can get him a cottage at Augusta National and don't worry about the price. We'll make sure you're okay with it. You know, you need a new wardrobe. Don't worry about the price seems like a lot, but I know a guy, right? So Eisenhower, and, and again, it's not to say that there's a, a cynical take on it or that he's naive, but it is to say that he is the benefit of the situation and he is the beneficiary of the political context. It's not that he's going out and saying, I need a good ad team. It's that he has a lot of people around him who understand advertising because they are deeply involved in business. And so they understand the consumer aspect in a way that, I mean, to be honest, Adelaide Stevenson doesn't. Adelaide Stevenson tries to run a very intellectual campaign. We're going to speak to the people on equal level and we're going to educate them. People don't want to be educated, right? I want a 30-second soundbite. Well, if you've got folks who are involved in retail politics now, or sorry, retail business, they can make retail politics much more appetizing. Yeah, and 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 it this is also the age of the political boss and the political machine, right? So this is not something that is in any way odd or even necessarily bad. It's just, it's just the way politics are done. Yeah, and that's you know, Truman's a political beneficiary of a political boss, and that that type of politics, it's. It's on the wane to a degree, but the power of the party. And one thing that we look at the parties today, we say, oh, man, the the power of the parties have so much. But the parties aren't in control in terms of the elite of the party in a way that they were in the 1950s. The, The party could really dictate what's allowed, what's not allowed to a degree. And this is one of the interesting things. We talk about the discipline that a party can impose. They can to a point. Not on Joe McCarthy. Right. And so there's a campaign event in in Wisconsin where Eisenhower in his speech had a line criticizing McCarthy for his criticism of of George Marshall, General George Marshall. And on the train, his political minders we probably should take that out because we're in McCarthy's Hometown, McCarthy's also going to be campaigning in the event with you. It would just not be a good look. And remember, this is McCarthy in 1952. He's on the ascendancy. This is not the McCarthy in the Army McCarthy hearings of, you know, have you at long last have you no decency. That's in the future. So Eisenhower is charting a different political path, but he can't just tell somebody who is politically attractive like Joe McCarthy to pound sand. So he takes the line out. And I think that there's there's that tension that the party can do a lot of things as far as the backroom deals to to make sure that the nominee that the party wants is the nominee that succeeds. But you do see the the influence of populism, the influence of folks like Joe McCarthy that can override some of that party discipline. And, and how do you to balance that out? It, it gets voters to vote. And at the end of the day, this is going to be reconciled in a general election. Even if we can control the primary process or the nominating process, if our candidate doesn't win in the general election, it's all for naught. So if you got folks like McCarthy who seem to be winning elections, that counts for something. So you mentioned that this, this uh, election is not completely about Korea, but it is a major factor, right? Yeah. So how does the opposition candidate, Eisenhower, how does he come at the Democrats and Truman on Korea? So he is hesitant to make it a front burner issue because it goes back to he's a five-star general. Solve the problem. The problem is you've got, whether it's incompetent folks or whether folks don't understand warfare, but Eisenhower should. And Eisenhower, from the early stages of the campaign, he is very clear to his advisors, there is no easy solution. So I don't know why people want that of me. 
And so they don't really make a big deal out of it. What they will talk about is how do you get there? And this was before the I go to Korea, he'll go to Korea speech in October, which is kind of the 11th hour of the campaign. But anyway, when he talks about Korea, he talks about it in terms of the post-war agreements that sold Eastern Europe and, by extension, sold Asia down the river to communist oppression. That the Yalta and Potsdam agreements were thrown to the Soviets and that was because the incompetence of the democratic administration is the sympathetic take. The cynical take is that maybe it's because you've got some inside sympathizers and they're actually moving these agreements so they're more beneficial to the Soviets than should have been. What he doesn't talk about is the fact that he's at those discussions and he is, while he's not a policymaker, he is influential and important. And at the time, he's not pounding the table saying, we can't do this. It's more, well, that's just the reality. I mean, this is the guy that, when asked, why don't you go farther than the Elbe? Why don't you go to Berlin? And he says, well, why am I going to risk American lives for a political objective? That would be pure politics. Soldiers' lives are worth more than that. And, oh, by the way, policymakers have already told me it's the Elbe. But, but even if I could, it would just be for politics. This is, so that's General Eisenhower. Fast forward almost a decade, and now he's a guy saying, and I think a little cynically, that the Truman administration didn't do all that was necessary or all that was possible to ensure a post-war Europe that allowed for the freedom of Eastern European countries. It completely misses the fact that, well, the Red Army's already in Eastern Europe, even before you're talking about the Elbe or not. Poland's already in occupation. So unless you're going to change that fact, and the way to do that would be to pound the table at Yalta and Potsdam and say, no, Commander-in-Chief, Mr. Truman, Mr. President, I need more forces because we're going to roll the Russians back. So anyway, all that to say, I do feel like there's a little bit of cynicism in his approach to discussing the Korean War in the early parts of the campaign. In October, though, when he says, I will go to Korea, he doesn't say that. He does say it. But he's not the one that says, you know what we need to put in the speech? We need to talk about Korea. Folks around him, and is it his speechwriter? Is it other folks in the campaign? It's, it's in the back of a campaign train, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. They put it in there, and they run it by the boss, and Eisenhower says, yeah, that sounds pretty good. The question is, what are you going to do in Korea? And that's not really clear in the Detroit speech. But what it does show, what it does move his campaign, apart from Adelaide Stevenson, is it puts him in a position to say, I'm going to take more active ownership of it. You talked about in the beginning of Korea at this time, really kind of a static war, that it's important. It definitely has an impact on people's lives, but it's not something that is as urgent definitely as World War II. But Eisenhower is going to go. He's going to investigate it. He doesn't promise solutions. What he promises is personal presence. And what that alludes to is, well, he's Eisenhower. This is a guy that won World War II in Europe. Certainly when he sees the situation, he'll have a better understanding. So he wins the election um, fairly easily mm -hmm. as they go. He now becomes president in January 53. What does he do with Korea from that point? <laughs> there's, there's the Eisenhower administration interpretation of events, which we'll talk about first, and then maybe there's reality, which is a little bit different. So he can't do anything markedly different because you already have folks mobilized and it's, it's at a nice stasis and the fear is if you're too aggressive, maybe you invite more Chinese reaction or, heaven forbid, more overt Soviet reactions. You don't want to do that. But you need to have some resolution. 
And so spring of 53, Stalin's going to die, but that's not as important from Eisenhower's interpretation of events. What is important is he starts to make clear through different channels. You don't have open relations with the Chinese. We don't recognize the Chinese. You talk to the Indians and you say, if this war doesn't start to find its way towards a peaceful ending, we may have to use nuclear weapons. And so Eisenhower's interpretation is that is the thing, that, that is kind of putting the thumb on the scale that finally makes the communist powers see reason and start to be open to some of these compromises that beforehand seemed too much. And one of the things they they get some of the easy stuff out first. You know, where are we going to have the con- where are we going to have the negotiations? Where is this demilitarized zone going to be? It's really this idea of repatriation. And from the U.S. perspective, what the Soviets want is everybody that you have should come back to us because they're prisoners of war. They're not yours. So give them back to us. We'll figure out what to do with them. The U.S. position is, yes, they're prisoners of war, but some of them may have been nationalists who were compelled to serve. They don't want to be there. Some of them may, may in fact, be North Koreans or Chinese communists, but maybe they've seen the error of their ways and they'd like a chance to do something else. So what we should do is have a vetting process. And, you know, we're even open to having third parties come in and vet. And then give these POWs, do you want to be repatriated? And if they do, fine, go for it. If you don't want to be repatriated, uh, you know, we'll find something else for you. Where they're going to be, uh, not not real sure. You know, do you want a whole bunch of North Koreans in South Korea? Maybe, possibly. What do you do with the nationalists? Do you send them back to Taiwan? Now they've got this. Anyway, so that's that's the sticking point for a long time. And the communists don't really seem to be open to negotiation. So from Eisenhower's perspective, it's the introduction of this threat of atomic weapons. That seems to, to jostle things, and now all of a sudden things are different. What that misses, though, and it's not to say that that they had the ability to understand this, but what we know a little bit more about. Stalin's death really opens a lot of possibilities inside the Soviet Union because there's a lot of jostling for who's going to be the new leader of the Soviet Union. And the the other question is, Stalin holds political power. He holds the party power. Do you want that concentrated in one person? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you kind of have this dilution of power so that the Soviets, you know, Russia, as far as in the Soviet Union, has its own political leader, and then the party leader is separate and apart from that, and so maybe you start to devolve power. You don't have just one person. It's not really going to happen, but it seems to be open for debate for a time. But what that allows is questioning some of these things that were unquestionable under Stalin. So maybe we can be a little bit more open to peace. Maybe we can try to decrease the tension in the Cold War, if nothing else, to give the Soviet Union some breathing space to work on their consumer economy and to work out this political issue. And then what's going on in China? Mao gets involved in the war for a couple of obvious reasons. One, they're, they're on his doorstep, so you got to do what you got to do. You don't really want a unified democratic Korea to border China. That's just not a good thing. But by 1952, the cost of the war, 1953, the cost of the war is onerous. Because, it, it, yes, it's the Korean War, but it happens to Korea. right? It, you've got to reconstitute North Korean People's Army, but it's really these Chinese Communist volunteers, much of their volunteers. Yeah, right, right, in, in air quotes. So they're the ones doing a majority of the fighting and the dying, and Mao needs to focus on what's going on in China a little bit bit ironic when we talk about what's going to happen the great leap forward and cultural revolution so maybe he should have stayed fighting in, in china but anyway right but so but he wants to focus on china 
if he can at least get something that's acceptable as far as a partition of Korea to provide that buffer between whatever South Korea is going to be and China, okay. So he's also more open. The question is, how do you get that out? Because China can't negotiate directly with the United States because we don't recognize China, but you gotta have some, some kind of intermediary. And also with Stalin on the stage, Stalin is not in control of the communist world, but if Stalin's not gonna allow it, it's hard to see how Mao's gonna force the hand. And so really I think the death of Stalin is the thing that, that makes a lot more opportunities possible that weren't possible when he was alive. And so what's interesting is the impact that that the assumed narrative has in the Eisenhower administration, because it seems to validate this idea of the new look defense policy that focuses on atomic weapons that well, helped us in the Korean War. And so maybe that's something we need to, to double down on. Whereas if you look at it in a little bit more nuanced fashion that, yeah, that was important in showing your resolve and showing your, your willingness to, to increase your threat. But it's also the fact that you had some really destabilizing event in the Soviet Union and the fact that Mao was kind of tired of this whole thing. I think that holistic view is a little bit better approach to understand. So how does the war actually end up ending? It's, it, it's, it doesn't technically end, but ending in quotes. <laughs> yeah, you, you've got the, the ceasefire. And what's interesting is as you start to, to see the way forward for this idea of, of repatriation and making sure that some folks who you would hope would have that vetting process aren't going to get it because we're, we're okay with these switches injured, non-injured POWs re lets all the POWs go and that that's problematic seems to derail things so it's it's interesting that our ally can be just as much of a hindrance as our, our enemies in some cases but you have this tense agreement to a ceasefire and the partition of Korea and it's a little bit more solid than the initial partition and you just kind of continue to go forward we're going to keep troops forward deployed in Korea because the Republic of Korea, while the Republic of Korea does a lot in terms of building its military infrastructure, in terms of building its military size, they cannot contain or they can't sustain their defense without U.S. forces. And so even even after the war, you're going to have troops deployed in Korea for decades. We still have the division headquarters there today. So it doesn't necessarily to end. Yeah, it's hard to say necessarily. It ends with a ceasefire. But one of the interesting things, when you, you have the ceasefire and then we're going to meet in Geneva in 1954, kind of iron out what that actually looks like. One of the things that it's ostensibly you're going to talk about Indochina as a tack-on issue. That's why Geneva is a little bit more important. Geneva in 1954 just kind of restates the status quo and puts it into agreement. And then you've got the partition of Korea and things stay the way they are. So Korea ends fairly early in Eisenhower's presidency. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about how he at least believed it was a validation of the new look. But could you talk to about the impact that Korea had on the rest of Eisenhower's presidency, either in the thinking or yeah. the military as well? Military. So that, that's one of the things that I'm, I'm in the early process of a, of a book project on this is it's not as is evident in a lot of the literature about this impact of the Korean War. Although for Eisenhower, it's gonna to continue to be a touchstone as far as a barometer, right? No more Koreas. Korea is a war we'd fight with atomic weapons. And in the current parlance, we've got large-scale combat operations. Well, Korea is a large-scale combat operation. But for Eisenhower, Korea is also a limited war, limited in that it's not atomic in nature. 
And so that that difference where we talk about, well, it's, it's really large, right, but Eisenhower sees it as limited. And for him, it's going to continue to be the archetype of conflict that the new look is designed to deter. If you can deter, deter that and above, you're okay. The question is, what do you do about maybe that and below? And that's where the new look is rightly criticized. And there'll be some, some variation to a degree about that. But that's really the, the project is to try to understand how does Korea kind of validate not just the new look in Eisenhower's opinion, but also validate his understanding of the importance of the United States internationally. That it's a catalyst for the Truman administration to be involved in this new militarized Cold War, but it also is going to validate NSC-68, which is going to be the grand strategy for the United States throughout the rest of the Cold War, with some variations by different administrations. But Eisenhower has his understanding of an international presence of the United States validated in the Korean War, and then when he becomes a presidential candidate and then president, his understanding of how you deter conflicts like that is validated to a degree. Yeah, and so the new look, basically, if I understand it, is a pivot away from the World War II style, big army, big footprint, to a more kind of nuclear-focused strategy? Yeah, right. So that's the hope. So NHTSA, remember, argues it should be yes and. you got to have a large atomic arsenal to deter conflict and a large conventional force to deter conventional conflict. And Eisenhower argues, maybe not. Maybe if you leave it open to question what your response is going to be. And this is the, the massive retaliation part, which you know, John Foster Ellis introduces that construct. And Eisenhower's got some, some heartburn exactly how that's interpreted. Because one interpretation is, oh, so any incursion is going to be an atomic strike on Moscow. Well, not quite. But what it does understand, what it does show is a realization that we haven't mentioned Clausewitz, which I think we have to, right? So, sorry. Obligated. <laughs> I think, yeah, obligated. We, we don't get paid if we don't mention Clausewitz. So, every policy has some incurred cost. And what you want to do is make it more, make it less clear to your enemy what the potential cost is going to be. And so, if your enemy is going to make a small incursion, they would assume that there would be a correlating, correlatingly small political price to pay or military price to pay. What the massive retaliation New Look policy seeks to do is put that into question. So the Soviets, if they do underwrite an incursion in some place on the periphery, maybe our response would not be proportionate to that aggression. And that hopefully will give them pause. And that's the deterrent aspect. I think there's a lot to be discussed in terms of well, what does that mean when we look at things now where proportionality is actually a principle of our operations. Well, New Look kind of throws that out and says, well, proportionality is not important. Actually, proportionality and the lack of it is the thing that provides that deterrent effect that we want. Is that is that good, bad, or indifferent? I think it works in, in Eisenhower's administration. One of the things in his memoirs, he talks about the fact that you know people criticize New Look as far as being one that, that erodes the capability of the Army and really kind of misses the boat. And he says, yeah, but we didn't have a war for eight years. And that doesn't just happen. And that's one of the things do you... Do you criticize the administration on the problems it was confronted with and that it faced, or the problems that it left over for the next administration? One of the things that the New Look doesn't do, it doesn't provide resolution to the problems in Indochina. Is that a fault of Eisenhower, or is it enough to say, well, for eight years we didn't, we didn't get heavily involved in it because we were able to mitigate it, keep it on a low boil, we didn't resolve it, but we also didn't make it worse, whereas the next decade you're going to see a fundamentally different conflict for a lot of a lot of different reasons. And so all that to say, I think 
there's there's some there's some justice in his view of the impact of that deterrent, but I also think it can be problematic if you want to focus on proportionality as an ethical approach to war or deterring war. And so it sounds like in kind of the bigger picture, Korea is one of these transitions of the early Cold War. Mm -hmm. We're moving from the conventional, uh, pretty logical, historical model of warfare to this more complex and nuanced and confusing nuclear-armed Cold War. Yeah, and Korea is a really interesting catalyst in that in the 40s, after World War II, folks write off conventional warfare because you have atomic weapons. Why on earth would you do anything other than just use atomic weapons, which is great for Air Force folks, not great for folks who are in the Army? What Korea shows, though, is maybe you have to have a conventional capacity. Maybe this war that we thought was obsolete actually is going to be even more important because if everything is just an atomic exchange, then what are you going to go to war for? Well, if you have that as your opening gambit, that anything's going to be met with atomic retaliation. Somebody's going to call your bluff. And if you don't act, well, then the whole game is over, right? And so what Korea shows is you've got to have some conventional capacity. One of the things that Eisenhower struggles with is what does that look like? How do you have a force that can do both? I think you can't, but they try it with a pentomic division that, no, this thing can be all... It can do all types of work. It can fight at the atomic level, it can fight at the conventional level, and it can be space age in the way that, that you want it to be. That's a conversation for a different day, but there's a lot of problems with that. But that's the hope, is that you can, in fact, have one force do both. What Korea shows is you have to do both. The hope of the 1940s, until you've got, until you lose the, the atomic monopoly, is maybe we can just have an air force that's power projection, and that'll be great. 49, you lose a little bit of that, but you don't fundamentally change. Korea is that catalyst for national security discussion to realize it can't just be atomic. You also have to have a land component that can fight conventional wars. So let's kind of go back to almost the, con the beginning of the conversation. You talked about the 1950s and everyone's kind of happy. Everyone, <laughs> the the, 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 the 20,000 view yeah. where everyone just kind of sees uh, the 1950s as kind of this halcyon decade where nothing really much goes on, mm -hmm. and Eisenhower goes plays in golf, yeah. goes and goes golfs. <laughs> uh, not obviously, they're uh, not not quite true. So when people look at Eisenhower, they kind of view him in one of two ways, right? It's the hero of 1944, 45, mm -hmm. or the kind of laid back president of the 1950s who built the highways, who built the highways, he did, yeah. Uh, which most people forget, uh, have, don't even give him credit for in kind of this big kind of trope version yeah. of history. So, what, in your eyes, what's kind of the most important part of Eisenhower? Is it the 1945 Eisenhower, Ooh. or is it the 1950s Eisenhower? Oh, man. Well, I, just personally, I mean, I studied the 1950s, so obviously now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so here's why I'd say the 1950s. When he's in uniform, and not to take away anything from his contributions, he is a policy executor. And so he can impact, he can influence policy development. But at the end of the day, he is executing the policy handed down to him. And he does it, he does it quite well. In the 1950s, he is the guy setting the policy. And he's also trying to figure out, well, what's feasible, what's not feasible, what's important, what's not important. And it's not just, we've talked a lot about the military side of it, but you, you brought up the domestic side. So yes, the highway system, which has a whole national defense aspect to it because he sees in Germany the Autobahn, how quickly you can get forces from point A to point B if you've got these wonderful paved roads that go around urban centers, but then we build 
highways that go through them. But anyway, that's a different thing. But it, it is actually an increase in efficiency for military deployment, but also for commercial deployment. And there's also the Brown versus Board of Education ruling, 1954, that, that he is responsible for. And there's, there's criticism with him in, in civil rights and that he's not as proactive. But he's also, I think, a little bit different than, than you know, the, the trope of a man of his time, right? He's, he's definitely someone who understands that the Supreme Court made a decision. That decision is rooted in the Constitution and also an appeal to the nation's founding values. As president, he has to enforce that decision. The question is, how do you do that in the most effective way without maybe being too, too forceful? Well, he deploys 101st to desegregate a school, right? So he's a guy that is willing to take a tough stance and willing to, to stand up for things that you'd think, maybe given his background, that he wouldn't be as open to or as energetic with. But he makes that transition from general to president really well. And it's not just that he's successful in national security affairs. He's also successful domestically. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion about a very interesting person and part of American history. Dr. Brown, thank you. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.